And that's actually a big way that people give power away is to think that you, it's your responsibility to save someone, you know, and it's actually quite, it's, it's counterintuitive because if you actually want to support someone, the best way you can do that is to allow them space to make their own choice, to make their own decision, to take responsibility for themselves. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery and sometimes the misery of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Sydney Campos, author of The Empath Experience, What to Do When You Feel Everything. I'm going to read from Sydney's bio here for just a moment. Sydney is an alignment alchemist, spiritual teacher, author, and speaker. She activates visionary leaders to live in alignment with their sole purpose while embodying next-level power, pleasure, and prosperity. Sydney is fiercely committed to awakening consciousness across the planet and creating new paradigms of economy, creativity, spirituality, and intimacy. I could go on and tell you about all of the certifications and programs that Sydney has completed, but you can read more about those yourself on sydneycampos.com. Let me just say that part of what drew me to her, part of why I wanted to interview her, is that she is someone who loves to learn, who loves to share. That's very evident. And specifically, what Sydney talks about in this book is what it's like to be an empath, what it's like to be someone who actually feels other people's feelings and perhaps even the feelings of other living things, including animals, perhaps plants, perhaps even the planet itself. She describes in this interview and in her book an awakening of sorts she had when she didn't realize that that was who she was or a gift or ability she had. And that's why for about a decade, she dealt with drugs and alcohol and other self-destructive behaviors as a way of coping with the intensity of emotion that she felt from those around her. So we talk about this in the interview. We talk about the dynamics of money, sex, and power. We talk about the, in fact, I'm not going to tell you what this was because I want you to listen to it from Sydney's words, but I ask her to share if we find ourselves in that situation of addiction or powerlessness over any substance or activity, what we could or maybe should do in such a moment. I also ask her to share if we love someone who's on such a destructive path, what can we do in that situation? How can we support and love those that we care for who aren't maybe doing what's in their own best interest? We also explore a distinction that I thought was really insightful that Sydney makes about the difference between service and servitude and why that matters. And then we get into, after the enlightening lightning round, we talk about Sydney's experience writing a book, which I found to be really miraculous. If you want to have written a book, if you aspire to write a book, I'm not sure how much Sydney's experience is going to help you because it was uh, pretty unique for many of my guests, but I think you'll take away some inspiration. 
and perhaps some useful ideas when it comes to promotion. Sydney's new book, The Consciousness Code, is set to come out in fall of 2020, and she shares the things that she would have done differently when it comes to marketing and promoting the empath experience, many of which could benefit you, again, if that's something you want to do. So I think you'll take away something from this interview that makes you a better person, I believe. So with that, I hope you enjoy this interview with Sydney Campos. Sid, welcome to the School for Good Living. (laughs) Thank you. It's really beautiful to be with you. Will you tell me, please, what is life about? (laughs) I love this question. Life is about being your true self. I'm having a great time. (laughs) I'm being of service, helping other people to do the same. Yeah, I think so. You know, as I was preparing for this, for this discussion and reading your book, The Empath Experience, What to Do When You Feel Everything, there was a lot of it. There was a lot in your book that really resonated with my own personal journey. And it made me think about this, this thing I've heard said before about many of us live two lives. We live a life full of pain and regret and you know remorse, this kind of thing. And then we live the life that where we express and live the lessons we learned from the first life. Mm. and and I I am so I want to I want to jump into that and and I know I didn't ask you about this before we started recording, but I hope you don't mind if I ask you some personal questions that come out of things I read in your book. Is that okay with you? I'm a totally open book. <laughs> Try me. Okay. So tell me about your arrest. Which one? (laughs) There were multiple. (laughs) How many? There's a lot. I have a record. Holy cow. Okay. I mean, I don't mean that. I didn't mean to say that in like a bragging way. Like, you know, it's just, it's funny. I I don't think about it often. This happened a long time ago. But for example, like a year ago, I was going to get my global entry, like TSA card. Uh And, you know, and I, and I go to the airport at LAX at the time and, and they're like, they flagged me. As you know, they're like, we're not sure if we're going to be able to give you the flight clearance because of your arrest record. And I hadn't thought about it in years, you know, and I'm like, what? That's so weird. Like this is, you know, but it, but I felt shame and I felt embarrassment in that moment because I just, it really caught me by surprise. And, you know, and those, those arrests were, you know, a long time ago, my like night, probably between the ages of like, 18, 19, 20. There were wow. some when I was younger too. Those aren't on my record, wow. but they were all involving drinking, hmm. getting arrested for being drunk in public, being a danger to myself and others. Wow. And, you know, and just being, uh, and I'm great. I'm actually really grateful for a lot of the times I got inter- intercepted. Yeah. You know, I was, I was in danger. I was like blacked out drunk and walking in, could have walked into traffic. I mean, I, I'm grateful for those officers that that took me in so I could, you know, be in a safe contained place. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes I marvel that any of us make it to adulthood, honestly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, between yep. all the hazards of being a child and, you know, all the other crime and accident and disease that can befall <laughs> us. But I definitely wondered when I read that because in the book I didn't see you expand on arrest and I know there's always a story behind that and I wondered mm. a bit is this one of those well-behaved women rarely make history kind of arrests where you're an activist <laughs> or was it you know something else but let me <laughs> let me go to that for a minute then about the alcohol because in your book mm. you talk about drinking as a way of muting your feelings for many years mm-hmm. right because in a, and I'd love to hear you talk more about this but for a long time you didn't recognize that you were an empath and then mm-hmm. as listeners, okay, so now we're like two levels deep, but maybe we actually start there. Like what is an empath, first of all? Mm. <sighs> an empath is 
in the very simplest context, someone that can feel what others are feeling and can even feel it, you know, feel other emotions or energetic expressions, really any other living being, not just people. There's many different kinds of empath and I, empaths, and I go into that a little bit in my book and there's many different expressions. And yet in the simplest term, you know, a lot of people that are, are awakening to their empathic sensitivity may feel that they can always really feel deeply like what other people are feeling, not only emotionally, but also maybe even physically. They can feel physical pain in other people's bodies, almost to the extent that it feels like pain in their own body. And it can create a lot of confusion if you don't know that, you know, this is what you're tuning into. There can be a lot of disassociation from oneself. It's like, is that my feeling? Is that my pain? Or is this someone else's? Or maybe usually at the beginning, you just think it's all you. Yeah. You know, I find this subject so fascinating because I think our culture really has a very limited vocabulary and understanding of emotion, things of mm. an emotional nature, emotions, feelings. It's about as deep as a lot of people's, you know, understanding seems to go mm. because it's not something that we're taught, many of us, by our parents or in school, but it's one of the most important things in life, mm -hmm. right? So this idea, as I've kind of learned principles of coaching and personal leadership over the about the last 10 years, it looks like you and I have kind of a similar timeline in, in that, although, and I want to ask some of your learning as well, but where I'm trying to go with this is this idea that I've kind of come to a place of where I'm kind of skeptical about empathic abilities only because I don't think I understand it yet. Like, so what I'm hearing and what you're saying is that the idea of an empath is that an empath is someone who has the ability to feel another's feelings as that person feels them. Or another living mm. thing, even potentially animals, plants, you mentioned in the book, even the planet, there's earth empaths, mm -hmm. you know, this kind of thing. And, and so I don't, it's not that I totally dismiss it, but I think maybe I don't fully understand it. But mm. you think that's, that's true that people can actually feel another person's emotions, not just in the way of like mirror neurons or like, oh, I've been mm -hmm. sad too, but like actually feeling the very same mm. sadness that another is feeling or the joy that another is feeling. Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, my definition and understanding has shifted a lot since I've written the book. I've you know evolved so much since then. and and now my understanding and what I believe is more that you know all human beings have the capacity to be highly not only empathic but teleempathic, mm -hmm. so that we're actually like very telepathically oriented and we're all highly intuitive. and you know, I, I hold very much more now this like multidimensional, knowing of like human, the human, divine humans being like these pure energetic beings with many, many expressions of intuition, yeah. like far beyond the few terms that we have made up sure. over the last little while. And, but yet to your point, there's a distinction that I write about in, in the earlier part of my book, actually, that's really helpful. And it's the distinction between empathy and being an empath. Okay. You know, empathy is just like what you said. Empathy is like, oh, like someone tells you their dog died, right? And you're like, oh, I'm so sorry. I could feel how sad you must be. Like that's, you know, we agree that that's a sad, that's a loss and there's grief and sadness. And I, I empathize with that. And I might even feel a little bit of like, yeah, that's sad. But then I'll, you know, 10 minutes later, whenever the conversation's over, I'll leave and go on, you know, that person will leave and go on to the next thing. They're not like continuing to feel really sad about this loss of the dog that wasn't even theirs. Like they had experienced the loss of a loved one themselves. Yeah. Now an empath, 
usually, a, you know, an empath that's also not yet identified as that would go into the same conversation and not only feel empathy, but also like might even feel the sadness of the person that's lost the dog or the loved one might even like really feel such a deep sense of grief and loss, maybe even more so than the person communicating to them is feeling yeah. like they, the empath might actually be able to feel like what's underneath, you know, and, and then might even take that energy on with them after the conversation's over might still feel like a latent sense of sadness and grief or depletion and, and, and might not have a rational explanation for that, but there's still that energy there present if they've really absorbed it from yeah. that context. Yeah. And, and I can imagine as you talk about in the book that that could be very, not just confusing, but very difficult if you weren't aware that you were one of these people, if you were an empath, that you had this tendency or ability to take on and feel other people's energy. And so it's in a way, I think, as I was reading, I thought about that, the thing I learned about early childhood development, where when a baby's born, it doesn't actually mm -hmm. even know it's separate from its mother for a mm -hmm. while, right? And so in this way, energetically, that we don't even necessarily know where we begin and end when it comes to other people. And how that could be very distressing, very disorienting, very confusing. And so maybe now this brings us back to the point uh, we were just talking about a moment ago with, with your use of alcohol. Before mm -hmm. you realized, before you had this awareness that you're one of these people, will you talk about what it was like when you realized that you were an empath or maybe what life was like before and then what life's been like now that you, that you are aware of that? Yeah. I also want to share, and maybe this is a funny roundabout way of answering your question, like I'm really sensitive to, you know, using these terms to self-identify as a way to create separation. Like I'm an empath. Oh, yeah. I'm different. Yeah, yeah. I'm special. Yeah. I'm better. Like whatever, all the ways that we're all clamoring for identity, you know, yeah. instead of just being who we are. And yeah. so I feel sensitive to that because, oh, and, and that's just part of my evolution over the last little while. Like I wrote this book two, over two years ago mm -hmm. and I feel like such a different my voice is different. My the way I see things is, is much different. And so I always say that whenever I'm sharing about the book, like, you know, that was take it or leave it. And yeah. I have some different ideas now, like, especially <laughs> if I'm being interviewed about it. But yeah. um, because, you know, at the end of the day, to your point, like, you know, we didn't know we we're separate from our mother. Right. Who says we're separate from each other? Who says you're not a reflection of me? Who says that I didn't actually create you from my consciousness to help me to better understand myself. You know, these yeah. are some of the things I like to, to play with and, and notice in our lives, the constellation of mirrors that tend to show up reflecting to, to us certain dynamics that we're ready to heal or grow through or, you know, finally integrate. And so, but, you know, obviously many years ago when I was younger and really getting activated in my psychic awareness and, you know, intuitive sensitivity, I didn't know what to do. I felt like something was wrong with me. I actually felt like I was crazy. Like the way that I experienced life was there's something wrong with me because I didn't see other people feeling so sensitive, you know, and taking things so personally mm. and, and also just carrying this weight of the world on my shoulders. Like I couldn't, I didn't understand why everyone else seemed okay. When meanwhile, there's like homeless people on the street and war and people dying and not taking care of the planet, not taking care of each other. How is everybody okay with this? Like, I just, I really felt deep loneliness and confusion. And, you know, and then I had to be a kid and go to school and be social and, you know, do all this life stuff. And it was, it always just felt 
extra difficult because I was seeing life through this lens of, you know, great detail, like really paying attention to people, paying attention to what they were feeling. And I didn't know this at the time, but I was really tuning in with everybody. What are they thinking? What are they feeling? How are we all orienting around each other? Like I have a very deep capacity for insight and reflection and I've always had that, but I, I didn't know that not everyone else around me was operating in that way. So I felt very isolated from most of my peers for much of my life because I just felt like I couldn't really communicate, you know, like my experience of the world was like very different. And I didn't have the words to even describe that. I didn't know that no one else was, you know, anyways, so we're getting a little existential now. So but, around by the, the way, of- sorry, just to jump in for a minute. I, I think, yeah. I, I mean, I, I know a lot of people seem to feel that way, right? Either yeah. isolated and many people, I, I can't. I've stopped being surprised in my in my role as a coach mm. at how many people feel like there's something wrong with them, they're somehow mm. deficient, they're inadequate, you know, or something like this, or that other people just don't don't get them. And so that that experience, you know, both from my own personal experience and then from people I work with, I know, you know, in some ways is universal, but I also acknowledge there's a very every one of us is unique and individual as well. It is really universal. Yeah. And the things that we're, you know, ashamed of and that we hide tend to be the things that we actually are most connected to others through, you know, that the things we share with everybody else, actually. It's funny. It's like the paradox. Everyone's like hiding the thing that we all actually have most in common, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. you know, but yeah. So that was 14 years old. I started drinking and it was like the best thing I ever found in my life. It was so... It was such a relief. It was like, oh my God, this feeling, what alcohol did to my body at that time was just like a relief. It's like, oh my God, I can just relax. I can just breathe. I don't have to be thinking about what everyone else is thinking. I don't have to be. And again, I wasn't aware of what I'm telling you now at that time, but I just felt like, oh my God, I can relax. (laughs) And then, I mean, 14, that's, that's young. And how long, and I understand now that you, you don't drink. Is that, is that right? I have, uh, I just celebrated eight years clean wow. from drugs and alcohol in November. Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, good, good for you. Um, I don't, I myself don't drink either. And, you know, I know we all have different motives for what we do. And, and for me, it's, there's not a morality behind it. It's really just, first of all, I realize I'm less of an a-hole <laughs> when I don't yeah. drink, but also the own awareness, like being able to mm-hmm. hear my own inner voice to achieve a state mm-hmm. of, of peace and equanimity more easily. Like that's all part of it for me. But tell me about that eight-year window there from 14 to mm-hmm. 22, and you touched on some of these arrests. Like, mm-hmm. how, I guess maybe the thing I'm really most interested in is how and why did you come out of it? <laughs> Yeah, it feels like such a long, it was 10 years, actually. I got sober when I was 24. I went to my first AA meeting when I was 17, because already after three years of drinking, I was, um, you know, getting into a lot of trouble and putting myself in a lot of danger. What really triggered me into that initial awareness that I might have a problem was, you know, when one of my best friends told me that she couldn't be around me anymore because of the way I was, you know, when I was drinking she was really scared and and worried about me and it couldn't, you know, I'd be going into full on blackouts, having conversations, getting into fights that I wouldn't remember. And then I'd call my friends the next day, like, what happened? Is everything, you know? And it was just over and over and over again. And, and, you know, and I, 
I went to a meeting thinking that like maybe I was really suffering a lot, didn't really know what else to do. But I went there and I didn't really see anything for me there. I was like, well, all these people are old and you know, clearly I'm okay and I'm going to go to college and I'm going to have fun and I'm going to keep drinking. And I, I just wasn't ready yet. And But at the same time, I like had my heart totally broken because here was my best friend that could no longer be around me. You know, so I was, I experienced a deep loss of like, you know, it almost felt like a, a breakup, you know, it was like a true love, like such a deep love. And I just, I got to see how I was the only one that was, you know, keeping that from myself. And that was incredibly painful. And the journey of drinking for me and alcoholism, drug abuse is like, is like that. It's like this isolation and this self-flagellating abuse of like keeping from yourself the things that you want most. And it's like, there's so many paradoxes within, but it it was just, you know, it's really painful. And it it was more things like that over the years, um, including physical injuries, lots of near-death experiences, more arrests, more humiliation, a lot of codependent relationships, a lot of things. In addition to like having a double life of doing really well in school and being involved in all these activist organizations and have like being a visionary Mm -hmm. committed to, you know, studying and supporting organizations, you know, in the realms of education and diversity and equal access and had a really good heart, you know, when it came to serving others and, and looking like I really cared about serving the world. But when it came to taking care of myself, I, I had no capacity and I really didn't, I didn't know what to do. And so, yeah, the end of, uh, the end of it all happened over about a year. I moved to New York city in 2010 and basically just had all of my worst fears come true. You know, I was like running out of money. My student loans were kicking in. I was just really, you know, really if in this whole new environment. It was like the big city. And on one hand, it's like what I'd always dreamed of. I could like, finally, I'm here, I've arrived. On the other hand, it's like, can I do this? Do you know, what, do I know what I'm doing? Like, this is really intense. Like, and I, you know, and I, long story short, started instead of going into like a career that I thought I was moving there for, instead got into the club scene, was a club promoter that led me to more, you know, kind of vampiric <laughs> lifestyle tendencies and a lot more drugs. I was doing a lot of cocaine, drinking heavily often, associating with, you know, people that didn't necessarily have my best interests in mind. And also at that time got involved in escorting and stripping and things like that and and just exploring shadow sexuality, but also wrapped up a lot in this like chasing money, you know, Mm -hmm. and really a lot of different dynamics there. I could talk about that for hours, all the lessons of like wanting to be paid to be myself and the healing of actually being there and being able to be free and be sexually expressed and be appreciated and feel beautiful and so many dynamics, but all fueled by drugs and alcohol, wow. you know, and, so, and, so never really fully present. And, <laughs> and on that point, I understand that you actually have a program or a course right now around this. Is that right? Something, something around oh, what you're talking yeah. about? Yeah, Kevin and I just, we actually created a course lot. Well, everything I've created, all of my courses touch on the energetics of money, sex, and power because those have tended to be the gateways to, you know, the core wounds and shadows that I transmute in this life. So, but Kevin and I created a course called Mastering Magnetism, all about money, sex, and power and becoming a clear channel to be truly magnetic and to make the unconscious conscious and really 
you know, take, take responsibility yeah. for creating the life that you really want. And yeah. So basically I, I got, what woke me up was a series of wake up calls over the last six months of a really challenging period. A lot of really scary wake up calls. Like I'd be blacked out, you know, on the subway after working at the strip club and I'd, it would be like 4am or something. And I would be woken up by a police officer at the end of the L train in Far Rockaway, which is like a really dangerous part of New York City, because I passed out and I'm like the only person on the train. I I mean, so many things could have happened to me. I'm very lucky to be alive. And I'd be woken up by the police officer and then I would, you know, like, oh God, okay, wow. Then I'd go home, I'd go sleep for like four hours and then I'd go to my, I had a full-time job at a financial services office and I would work there from eight to 8.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. And I was just, you know, I was like a shell of a human being. Like I really was. I was so, I think I was possessed. I'm not sure how I was able to do that. Wow. Did that for a few months. And then eventually I found myself in a therapist's office and I thought I was going there for career counseling because I really thought like if I could just help have some support and understanding, you know, the job that I'm supposed to do, yeah. then I can feel fulfilled And then I don't have to behave in all these ways. You know, this is literally the way that I was orienting in the world. And like, it's an outside thing. If I could just make the outside picture look clear and make sense, then maybe I don't have to behave in these other ways. I don't have to suffer. I don't have to feel so confused or worried. You know, and then eventually I told this therapist the truth of what I had been actually doing, which is actually more than I just told you. There are many other things going on that were really crazy. <laughs> Those are podcast interview parts four, five, and six. <laughs> there's a lot of things. There's a lot of yeah. things. And maybe I'll never tell, who knows, you yeah. know, there's so much, there's so many things. And, and the therapist though, after I told her, it was like the first time I told someone the truth. Uh-huh. That's the most important takeaway of this whole thing. It's like, I told someone the truth of all the things that up until then I had been hiding uh-huh. and keeping to myself with great shame. Yeah. I told her the truth. And the look on her face was like a total God shot. She was like, without saying anything, the look on her face was like, I see myself in the mirror right now. And it was like my soul screaming at me that, you know, you're going to die if you keep doing this. You're going to die. What are you doing? And that was a major wake up call. And I didn't get cleaned up right away, but it was like something really shifted in me in that moment. And I got clean shortly thereafter, you know, after a failed like one night stand, waking up, not knowing where I was. And that was also different though, because I had, that was a familiar situation, waking up, not knowing where I was, you know, one eye open, am I in my house? I don't know. But at that point I woke up because my alarm on my phone went off and the alarm was reminding me that I had a, a lunch date in Manhattan to go meet my family friend and her niece who was getting ready to go to college. They wanted to have lunch with me to talk about my experience in college because they saw me as this role model, <laughs> as this example, because I had done really well in school. And I, you know, I, I guess I was a role model. And so there was something about that contrast that like literally woke me up with the alarm, but like also woke me up to this feeling of, wait a minute, I think that like who those people expect me to show up as, that feels more true hmm. than what I'm doing right now, than wow. who I'm being here. And again, I didn't have that awareness now, but in hindsight, I can see like that was my last day drinking and doing drugs. That was like sober, sober day one started the following day. And I went to AA a few days later and yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for, thank you for sharing what you did, what you did share. You know, (laughs) I I suspect for, I suspect that this conversation by this point, I mean, we're 
20 minutes or so in has probably had one of two effects on listeners. One is I think probably many listeners are drawn in and they're recognizing some tendencies in themselves, even if they maybe didn't get, you know, to, to a depth that you did about blackout drunk and things that were maybe very self-defeating or self-destructive and others are not really recognizing themselves in it at all and maybe tuned out, which of course is fine. But <laughs> I'm glad you said what you said about truth, because mm. what I what I'd love to to just touch on before we before we transition to some of the other questions I have for you is, you know, for someone who's in this situation, and I'm interested to explore this also for someone who loves someone who's in this situation, mm. which I know are different, both painful. And maybe truth is is an answer, the answer. But what do you say to somebody who really recognizes aspects of themselves in the that those ten years you just you know articulated? Mm. Mm. Well, you know, the first thing that comes up is like alcohol and drugs are a symptom. You know, like don't compare too much. Like what I when I talk about drugs and alcohol, and you're like, oh well, I didn't have a problem with that. It's totally different. It's like those are literally just symptomatic expressions of, as we said, a very universal, I believe, experience Mm -hmm. of like unquenchable loneliness Mm -hmm. and an unquenchable sense of like feeling that everything is up to me. I have to control everything, saving, I have to save the world, I have to figure it all out, I have to be perfect. Yeah, that's heavy. Like, Like feeling such a deep pressure to do it all right, to have it figured out like that. That was my experience, you know, so I was so tightly wound up and I'm feeling everything and I'm like, so tapped in, I'm feeling everybody. I don't, I have no words to describe that experience, but I'm just so wound up. I'm so uptight and I'm so in my head overanalyzing everything. And I still struggle with this sometimes like, you know, wow, I really, I'm still growing in this way. Majorly. It's like deeper, deeper layers of the overanalysis, self-judgment, you know, feeling like I have to have it figured out. This is like a continual thing. And it was so hard when I was younger because I had no way of expressing what I was feeling, but I was just so uptight. And so the drinking, the drugs was just like a way to relax, you know? So I know that we all have these experiences of feeling like it's just too much and there's so much pressure and we just have to figure it out and people expect us to be perfect or we expect ourselves to be perfect. And then how do you check out? Like we all have different ways, you know, so I just want to offer that because it's like, it's so important to identify with the feelings. And I'm actually conscious of talking too much about drugs or alcohol or my experience in sex work, for example, because that can be really isolating if people are just comparing the outsides. Right. Well, I didn't do that stuff. So we're different, but it's you no, know, the, uni- the feelings and the emotional experience, the trauma is quite universal. And there's, there's deep you know, messages that we can all relate to yeah. in everyone's journey, actually, when we can set the identity and the externality aside and like really like sink into the the felt experience. And, but to anybody that relates, you know, to anything I've shared so far, the most powerful thing you can ever do is ask for help, you know, like get out of your own way and stop thinking that you have to figure it all out and, and look perfect before, before you even ask for help, right? As is the case with a lot of perfectionists and and you know my kind of people, it's like, you even want to look good when you're asking for help. And you don't even want to ask for help until you know exactly what to say in the right way so that even you know, the help is perfectly delivered. And it's just, you know, so there's, there's a point to what I shared when I finally told someone the truth. I could see myself and I could feel that weight be lifted and I could re- start to receive. 
support, which in that case was literally just someone holding presence, you know, like I, I received support in someone's loving presence, like not running away after what I told them, just mm -hmm. being myself, being seen, just like releasing a little bit of energy I had been holding for a long time. Yeah, that's, that's powerful. And that's one of the things that I, I love so much about coaching, this mm -hmm. idea of being a space holder, being a witness, you know, for others mm -hmm. where I think, and, and I certainly have respect for therapy as a modality, but I know many times, uh, at least my experience is therapy often is, oh, there's something wrong with you, we'll fix you. You know, you're dysfunctional, we'll get you functional. Where mm -hmm. I love, I th and it seems to me just from what I've read about you and the videos I've watched online from your book that that you seem to have that come from as well, that there is a beauty and perfection innate in us already. And sometimes it's just a matter of letting it out or letting go of what holds it back, you know? So to hear you talk about that, someone like a loving presence who can simply be there without giving advice necessarily, without offering solutions, that's, there's, that's power. That's powerful. Presence is our power. It really is. And to, to be in that, to be yourself, to be truly present, it's literally just a deconditioning of everything that you've ever learned, you know, that's taught you to not be yourself or to be caught up in overthinking, to be caught up in overdoing, to be caught up in comparison. It's like, what are all the masks, you know, what are all the masks that we wear that just keep us from being right here and right now with each other, you know, and, and being with ourselves fully. And yeah. this is like my, this is like my, I'm devoted to cultivating presence. I'm like, so a student of how we embody presence, because I'm, I'm telling you, I have been, even in the last couple of weeks, I've been in a big initiation of peeling away masks and layers that, you know, I never knew existed. I thought I was doing great <laughs> and, and I am doing great. Yeah. And there's this like, really, I'm in like a deep sense of like humility right now for how how many layers we all hold, you know? Yeah. Is this, is this a little bit like when you look back on your junior high or your high school hairstyles, your outfits, <laughs> like, I, did I really wear that? <laughs> Was that really totally. my mask? Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. Well, okay. So before we totally transition away, I just, I do want to ask for your perspective on this as well. If someone loves someone who they perceive is going through what I would say a struggle, you know, whatever it is and whatever their thing is, whether drugs and alcohol or, you know, destructive relationships or work or, you know, mm -hmm. for me, it was ridiculous amounts of video games, you know? So I, I hear what you're saying that we all have ways of doing it. People, it's food, right? Some people, it's mm -hmm. gambling. Some people, it's porn. It's other stuff, just being busy. But for anybody who sees somebody that they love going down, what they see as a very destructive path, what do you, what do you offer to that person who's witnessing this occur? Hmm. To to those beautiful beings, I just offer you a lot of compassion and a lot of love because I know how hard that feels to watch people that you love, who you see, you see their genius, you see what they're capable of, you see how amazing they are, you love them so much, and you see them like in self-destruction. I mean, there's maybe no worse feeling actually. It's like, oh, yeah, what, what's the... Can you actually like really get humble and realize that they're the, the best thing that you can probably do in service to anyone else, especially your loved ones that are suffering, is to take care of yourself. Wow. Why do you, is to like, that seems so, yeah. I mean, I love that answer. 
And I actually <laughs> wanted, I want to ask you more about that because you talk about this, especially for empaths, treating yourself, yes. you know, like the most important in your life, which many people don't. But I'm seeing this as kind of maybe a segue or transition. But, but what do you mean when you say that? Because it seems so counterintuitive. Isn't it like, oh, I just need to find the right therapist or I need to give them the most persuading. I need to do an intervention. I need to convince them. Like, but, but instead you say it's like being, you know, taking care of yourself. Why? Mm -hmm. Why do you say that? Mm -hmm. That's really all we're responsible for. And that's really all that we actually have power over. We're not responsible for anybody else. We're not responsible for anyone else's feelings, anyone else's choices, behaviors, actions, you know, it's like, and that's actually a big way that people give power away is to think that you, it's your responsibility to save someone, you know, and it's actually quite it's it's counterintuitive because if you actually want to support someone, the best way you can do that is to allow them space to make their own choice, to make their own decision, to take responsibility for themselves, you know, to be in their power. You know, so if someone's choosing to be an alcoholic, and that actually feels controversial as I say that, but I believe that to be true. I feel like we're always making a choice, consciously or unconsciously. We're always making a choice. And we're not a victim, actually. We're not a victim to our choices, we're not a victim to, you know, I believe now, like maybe for some of my path, I, I identified as an alcoholic, as a drug addict, but I'm actually not a victim to drugs or alcohol. I was choosing to play out the experience of, yeah, being a victim to drugs and alcohol. I chose that experience so that I could, you know, be speaking to you now from this other vantage point, yeah. having lived the, the contrast. And so that's what I mean. The best thing that you can do if you see someone in your life suffering, especially with addiction, and you can go and learn this in recovery programs too. It's the same message. It's like focus all of the energy that you focus on worrying about the other person, you know, like your, how much energy are you giving to like worrying about them? And, and that energy that you're giving to worrying about them, to tracking them, to thinking about where you, how you have to help them, how you have to shift to support them, it's actually empowering them to stay sick. To stay yeah. in the problem, to stay in their disease. Yeah, to keep that. You know, pattern. it's like validating. It's enabling. Yeah. It's actually enabling them, you know, because probably what they really want is love, is attention, is they feel isolated and alone. So perfect. You're showing up that way. So they're gonna keep getting what they want as long as they keep giving the bait, you yeah. know, and that's maybe an oversimplified way to say it. But really the most empowering thing anybody can do is to like fully direct all of your energy to feeling your best, to taking care of yourself, to getting to know you. Yeah. Like, what do you really want? And then you may find, here's the thing, right? Because this is a great intimacy to actually like focus your energy on yourself. It's a lot easier to look at someone else and be like, oh, this is what you need to do to be better. You know, turn the table onto you and, and really get intimate with you. And how are you showing up in life? How do you feel? Do you feel supported? Are you happy? Do you feel like you have what you need? Do you feel confident? Mm. You know, do you feel fully alive? And and get really turned on about, you know, you feeling your best. And you might find in that process that the people that you, you love and the people that maybe are around you that you love but they're suffering, you might find that they either fall out of your life, they might not actually be in alignment with you once you're really like, you know, in your power. You might find that they totally shift because you're actually such a powerful example of, you know, what it's like to take care of yourself, all sorts of things can happen. But I, I tend to find that the, the, the former is more true, like the people that you thought you really cared about, that you're giving a lot of energy to wanting to help, 
once you focus your attention on yourself more fully, you actually kind of fall out of resonance with a lot of the people that you once thought you, you know, really wanted to to save. Yeah, that that's a really beautiful nuance, actually. That until I think one lives, they might not really fully get. They might not be able to experience until you live it. <laughs> you know. Because the thing that comes up when you say that to me is when somebody is in that destructive pattern, if we're running some kind of like a rescuer pattern of our own or you know something like that, that that's part of what's keeping their pattern in place. And the moment we stop that and turn our focus inward, like you're saying, that the entire dynamic can shift. But that's interesting. I can also hear how this could be very conceptual, but until somebody mm-hmm. lives it, you know, they won't. got to feel yeah, it. Yeah. And we've all kind of lived it. I mean, we're also talking about codependency versus sovereignty or independence, you know, or yeah. interdependence. Yeah. And and there's a lot of that running rampant. And it's we're talking about, you know, unconditional love versus dependent love. You know, dependent love says, you know, I'll love you if, I'll love you when. Right. You change when you get sober, when you get clean. I gotta help you do that so we can be in love or whatever it is. Versus unconditional love, like true love, I believe, is I love you right now as you are. Yeah. You're perfect, whole, and complete. Yeah. And I'm perfect, whole, and complete. And I'm completely committed to you know, full responsibility for living my best life. And I hold you to that standard too, because that's why we're here. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Okay, so the last question, I want to transition away from maybe what we've been talking about directly just a little bit, because... You gave what I thought was a really beautiful distinction in this book about service versus servitude. Hmm. And I never heard it laid out like that before, but I'm really fascinated by that. And I wonder if before we move to the enlightening lightning round, if you'd be willing to say a little bit Mm -hmm. about what you mean by that. Yeah. Thank you for asking me about that. Yeah, there's a distinction between, you know, like what you asked me, the, the meaning of life, right? It's like to be yourself, to have a great time and help others, to be of service. Being of service is like, mm, feels good. It feels like giving from overflow. We give a gift because we naturally have these beautiful gifts. And of course, we want to share them. It's like the most natural thing ever. And it feels like lightness. It feels like joyful. It's like the definition of abundance, right? Like, oh, I have all this love. I have all this wisdom. I have all these learnings I want to share. You don't even think about it. You just want to help. I feel like all humans are actually really wired to be in service and to help and to give a gift. You know, we each have a really unique key and a gift to give. And we're here on earth in this life to explore and find out what that gift is and then like, give it because there's no better feeling. And then servitude is this experience that I lived a long time playing out and sometimes will still pop up. And it's this feeling of like obligation of like, I have to, I should, I'm supposed to, you know, make a video because, because I'm supposed to help people. I'm supposed to go and, you know, I have to do the podcast because I have to help all these people wake up. I have to, it's up to me. You know, and there's like pressure and constriction, or there's an energy of, People are expecting me to do this. They're expecting me. People are de- people are depending on me. So I have to. And there's really this almost enslavement energy of like, you know, like I owe people. I owe people a debt. I have to show up and perform so that everyone will ascend because it's all up to me. Yeah. And you know, I'm, I'm having playing with that a little bit. But um, 
this is an energetic that, uh, wow, I've gone through a lot of initiations in, and it's a really helpful discernment tool. And I, I spoke about it in the context of empaths, but it also came up a lot for me in the context of my business and being a coach and a healer. And, and you know, and this is my path in life is to be of service in this way as a guide. Like I'm here to be a guide and I am here to wake humanity up, but it's not out of servitude. It's not a have to, yeah. it's not even an obligation. It's a deep desire to live my soul mission. And so it's with great joy that I create. And yet sometimes the energy of servitude can still creep in if there's any distortion of validation seeking, mm -hmm. needing attention, wanting people to like, you know, praise me as the guru or be on a pedestal. If there's any insecurity at play, you know, then that, that energy can creep in of, I should make this video because I'm on one level, I'm going to get some attention and I should do it because it's expected to happen once a week and it, little things like that. And, it, and it's, it can be subtle or it can be very overt. And so the, I made a little table in my book about how, you know, for a lot of empaths, it's like, that's mind blowing to them. Like, oh my God, as an empath, I grew up my whole life thinking, okay, if I can just help other people feel good, then I can feel good. Since yeah. I'm feeling what everyone else is feeling, as long as I can manage everyone's happiness and make sure everyone's feeling okay, then I can feel okay. But that's servitude. That's again, taking responsibility for everyone else's feelings and energy and feeling like it's all up to you to take care of everyone, you know, so that you can feel good yeah. versus flip the whole switch. I'm only responsible for myself. I'm going to commit to taking amazing care of myself. I am the most important person in my life. I love myself. I accept myself. Do your practices every day. Take care of you. Come into mastery over your emotions, your energy. You know, have fun. Be yourself. And then how do you want to share your gifts? Oh, your presence just becomes this radiant light that happens to be healing, is naturally uplifting of people that come into your environment. But there's no codependency. There's no conditionality. Yeah. There's no like, I have to be responsible for you so that my happiness is contingent upon you. Yeah. You know, so, and there's some little checklists that um, in that table that people tend to really enjoy. They're like, oh my God, I had no idea. Yeah. Service versus servitude. I've been totally a slave to doing whatever, what I think everyone wants me to do. Hey, thank you for listening to part one of my interview with Sydney Campos. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at brianmiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.